Well, hello there. This is Brian Melanson, and you tuned into this session of the Altitude Sessions podcast. We're glad you stopped by. Actually, recording this right off a fairly busy road with our mobile podcasting system here in Jackson Hole today, doing it to make a little bit of a point because we're going to give you our version or spin on what's happening within the millennial and Gen Z generations and how that's going to impact where the healthcare industry is going and to take you to church first and then kind of work back from there. So tune in. This should be an interesting spin on a topic you've heard before. We'll dive right on in. Thanks for joining us. All right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we are going to, we're going to go to church here a little bit today because one of the, the main questions that churches around the world are trying to answer and there was a study that was commissioned just a few few years back that said, you know, why are individuals like the the millennial generation, why are these individuals, why are they less engaged? Why are they not coming to the institutions that have been that have stood strong for for decades and you could say centuries? And why aren't they part of these large institutional organizations that have been stood up? You know, why are they leaving these institutions and droves and causing, you know, holes in the way the, you know, the religious fabric and the way these, these large religious institutions have kind of established themselves. And I think that's an interesting take on how we can kind of jump into the, the real challenges that folks talk about with regard to the millennial generation when they talk about kids, you know, even my, my, my kids, their age that are in the Gen Z class of folks. And you know, I, a couple things. One, with this particular podcast, as I mentioned in the onset, this is a, you know, I'm recording from a, a relatively large room, so it may be a little bit more echoey than normal. That's on purpose. And then secondly, I'm actually recording in a room that is right next to one of the more busy streets in all of Jackson, in the town of Jackson. And that's for a reason too. So throughout this podcast, you may hear large construction trucks and start buses, which is our, our municipal transportation system and other things that blow by. And that may be part of what's called the ambient of this particular podcast, because as we look at, you know, the types of institutions that are being put together by, you know, the, the leading generation and Gen Z and these millennials, you know, one that, you know, comes right to bat is, you know, you know, Swedish born teenager, Greta Thunberg, who is, you know, excoriated world leaders, leaders at the United Nations and is leading a, a rebellion, you know, basically the, the extinction rebellion that is this worldwide thing that is taking, taking hold to get at the effects of climate change and its impact on biodiversity and its impact on really even the, the way societies are structured and could be broken down because of the impacts of climate change. And it gets into the point about the types of movements that these younger folks are being drawn to and the types of statements that they're making and the impact that it's having on corporate planning as they look at what is our purpose, as they look at where they're going to be able to resonate with these folks to help grow their businesses in the next, you know, five years, next 10 years, next 20 years, and the things that they need to do to position themselves to be in a place where they can resonate and have a dialogue with these, these generations that are going to have massive purchasing power. The millennial generation already does estimated over 200 billion in spending that that's already sitting 
with the millennial generation. But, you know, going back to the point about, you know, church and the broader point about the large institutions that are out there and, the you know, what the, the thing that I want to talk about is that it's very often even in the, the health insurance domain, the ancillary domain, the reinsurance domain, all of you, you know, much of your advertising today is this, we're a bedrock foundation. We've been around for decades. We've been the big skyscraper in the city for 80 years. You can trust us. And if I leave you with any point, it's maybe this generation is going to say, fuck you. And they're going to say it with a smile on their face while tweeting it or doing some type of a, of a Snapchat or live streaming it to all of the folks in their little world that they influence. And, you know, where that's been pretty present and where there's a lot of concern in the religious establishment is why are millennials particularly leaving the church in droves? And I've had these conversations even with folks that sit within that generational timeline with folks that are in our office on our team. And it's a fascinating conversation because these, these folks, number one reason they're, they're leaving, because they believe these big institutions, including the church, have a lack of authenticity. The primary reason is a lack of authenticity. The, the whole speech of the United Nations from Greta was, was about a lack of authenticity from world leaders saying, hey, we want to do something on climate change, but we're not going to prioritize that above the profits of the companies in the energy industry and other things that are going to drive tax coffers and the other things that exist in the existing world structures today. And, you know, while she excoriated the UN, you know, people like President Putin over in Russia came back and said, no, you know what? It's a much more complex thing, something that a teenage mind couldn't fathom or even begin to understand. And that gets at the problem. Because you, you look at this, this religious survey, it starts with a lack of authenticity. Number one, they are leaving those foundational bedrock parts of, the, of society. They're leaving the church because they don't believe the church is authentic. Do they believe you're authentic? Do you position yourself as a business, as an organization, as an authentic organization that actually works to the benefit of the people that you're trying to establish a relationship with? You know, as, as you move into this more, the one thing that millennials are looking for that they're not getting in places like that, and they may not be getting from you, is they are looking for an authentic relationship. They want to express and act out their faith with others. They live a lot of that now in, you know, the Instagram world and other things where they are trying to express some outcome. You can argue whether that's authentic too, because a lot of it isn't but they're trying to express their viewpoints in a way where they acted out with other people in an expression of faith. And in large part, there's many, many churches, particularly the old order that don't really accommodate that. They want meaningful action. Number two, I mean, so they want authenticity one, and that's one of the major reasons why they're leaving. They want meaningful action. They want to move from sitting in a chair on a Sunday service being talked about all the things that can be changed in the world because of the way the religion is structured, because of the lessons that are presented in the Bible and in other places, because of the life lessons that have been intertwined with the religious 
scholar approach that have been talked through on this Sunday session, they want to move beyond that Sunday session, beyond sitting on their hands on their chair in their chairs. And they want to make a meaningful difference in their community. They want to make a direct impact on the world around them. They want to actually feel like, as a collective group, they're able to move the world in a more positive place than maybe what they see today. And some of that comes back to, well, why would they want to do that? Because they believe that, in some degree, organizations have prioritized shareholders' profits and other things above them, so the institutions that represent some of the biggest names in society are actually failing them. There's counter-arguments where you can say, gosh, that's all bullshit. I don't, I don't buy that. Because the growth of these organizations has provided economic expansion to where it's helped lift a number of people from one place to another. And the other argument is it's been done unequally. And you can go back and forth all day long on that and, you know, play both sides out. But the broader point is, there's this, this lack of authenticity. They want meaningful action beyond just being lectured at. You know, and there's even a portion of the conversation in this study that says they don't want to be pontificated to. All this pontificated monologue without time for even Q&A. Because there are major questions in the church that lead to this crisis of authenticity where there are a number of millennials that want to bring a gay friend to church and they don't want that gay friend to be ostracized. They want to have an honest, open dialogue on what the Bible says about their friend. And even if it comes out on the side of, gosh, it doesn't line up with maybe my personal beliefs, at least let's have the dialogue. Because a lot of times it is a finger pointing from the pulpit type thing, saying that, no, it's just wrong. And quite frankly, maybe you shouldn't be friends with that person or that person, if you are friends with them, doesn't belong in the church. And there's this old line, older group of folks that protect the traditions of the church to the extent that it may ostracize some of the folks that sit within a more liberal viewpoint of whether you're gay. And I think that the, these millennials live in this world where that viewpoint is more openly accepted where that viewpoint is, you know, come into the diversity and inclusion argument that exists out in, in even corporate America now that they want to be able to pull that into the institutions like the church and say, let's have similar arguments within these, these bedrock institutions maybe that we are within our corporations. And corporations are making strides on this front with, with diversity and inclusion officers and other things to have a much more open-ended dialogue on the role of all these, the various persuasions that exist in the world, from sexual orientation to uh, the color of our skin and all these other things, that, that is a conversation that corporations, based on the ethical responsibility they have to the society and the communities that they serve at large, are, are willing to have. And that's a great thing. There is sometimes what feels like a breakdown in some of the other institutions that lack the authenticity to want to have those kind of conversations. And where those things happen, they, they leave them in droves. Where I challenge you and your organizations to think about the authentic 
viewpoint that you're bringing in the market, does it really come off as authentic? Does it come off as contrived? The solutions that you bring to the market, do they really solve an issue in a way that it it feels like it's a bit more balanced and less tilted towards you? Insurance typically has a pretty horrible net promoter score and other things because at the time of need, when you usually need it, the whole entire system kind of attacks the sickness. And then it's a very complex maze of garbage that has to be navigated through to determine what gets paid for and what doesn't. And you get to see the system almost at its worst at a time when you need it to be at its best. And does that create in its own right kind of an authenticity crisis that sits within our, our industry? And are there opportunities for those, those things to be addressed in a different way than we're doing today? A uh, little sip there. The thing about millennials that I also thought was interesting, there's a YouGov surge, uh, survey that was out that just recently came out here in 2019, that despite all the technological connectivity, despite this yearning to be part of something larger, despite this yearning to demonstrate their faith in different ways, millennials as a group, 30% of them have some feeling of loneliness. 23% of them feel like they have no friends. It just shows you sometimes maybe this, the shallowness of the interactions and things that happen technolo technologically as we bring everything more toward technology and more toward coming to us and more centered around us. Are we also creating more moments of isolation and loneliness because of it? And are these surveys starting to prove that out? And are there opportunities to to create a theme into that. What I find interesting about a lot of the, the cost sharing plans, the religious sharing plans that are out there today, staying on that theme, you know, oftentimes when there is an illness, those plans, you know, sometimes are accompanied when you get something paid for with a note saying, hi, I'm, I'm Brian and I helped take care of your ankle injury. You know, God bless you and hope you have a great rest of the day. So there's some outreach and some feeling toward community. I think it's interesting. That's a theme that's kind of being embedded or threaded through those organizations. And when you go back to even the original health insurance organizations, as they were, you know, true of mutual plans, it was a, a aggregation of like-minded folks that were trying to come together to help offset really expensive stuff. Even several decades ago, you can imagine that the closeness and the, the, the tight knitness, the tight knittedness of that, drove something special in the commonality of what that insurance plan is. What I find interesting is as insurance organizations gotten larger, many of them have struggles when they try to solve for problems in smaller states because in those smaller states, you know, take Wyoming or take Alaska as an example or Montana, most of the people that are in the industry run into each other in the grocery store, so it's really hard to have any strategies with anonymity in those states, it's going to get found out what you're doing, good, bad, or indifferent. And operating with that anonymity or without it is sometimes not the preferred strategy for some of the larger organizations. So I think that's kind of a fascinating finding just when you, when you go to a group that wants to be together, wants to have this, this expression of faith, and as I mentioned earlier, folks in our office, they, 
they have expressions of faith. They have rituals. They go out on Monday or they go out on Sunday morning and it might be a spiritual yoga thing that they're doing out, out in nature. And that becomes a ritual that replaces some of the things that are sit in the pew and be pointed at and lectured to and told what's right and what's wrong. And that institution is having its moment of crisis where it's trying to figure out what do we do to get these folks involved in these religious rituals that have been the bedrock of our institution for years, for decades, for centuries. So that's the question. Are you having an honest dialogue? Because you can certainly say in the Gen Z front these days, the Greta Thunbergs and such of the world are having honest dialogues with world leaders. That Extinction Rebellion is a pretty pointed dialogue that gets right to the point. So what about these folks that kind of wraps into even some of the other things that I, you know, have stopped me in my tracks over the years. One is there was a book that was out there that's been panned by critics as not meeting its mission and other things, but I still found fascinating. It's called Pendulum. And Pendulum was published in 2012. And, you know, it's going to do, you know, the book's premise and where critics got on it, it was going to talk about several thousand years of history and how it can be defined on this pendulum that swings over 80 years back and forth. But it really focused, instead of kind of this global several thousand year view, which was kind of what it was promising, it focused a lot more on the last hundred years or so in the U.S. with a little bit of a nod toward the rest of the world and thousands of years prior to that. That being said, the book itself has a premise to it where it studies song lyrics and and other things and says that it can kind of get a feel for the general consensus on how society is coming together and what its general purpose is. Is it all about me? Or is it more about a uniform, unifying factor of we? And the pendulum kind of swings back and forth. And it does this irregardless of technological innovation and other things every, about eight, every 80 years. And when you put that to the test and you go back and you look at the pendulum swings, we are currently in the swing trending on the upswing toward we, which is about my group and what I associate with versus your group and what you associate with. And that's not necessarily this old kumbaya type thing that says, gosh, the world's going to live in peace and harmony. Because actually, if you study the book, it's, it's a little bit different than that. This, this coming of we is actually working through dictatorships and times of, of tyrants and tyranny and war. And because the, the we, going back to the last time the pendulum was on the upswing, which was in 1923 to 1943, that was when that was when Hitler was in charge and we were in the middle of World War II. It's on the U.S. side when we took a safety net leadership role inside our country through FDR and we put together a lot of things that actually protected the population from the down cycles in the earlier part of that. 
you know, if you look at 1923 to 1943, in that 20-year period, we had the stock market collapse of 1929 that founded the Great Depression that also, under FDR, led to a hell of a lot of reform that drove financial institutions into much more of a regulated world and other things. It is a period where you had the Nuremberg Laws. It's a period where the War of the Worlds radio show came on. It's a period where minimum wage was established on the social safety net front. It was a period of the Warsaw Poland ghetto uprisings. It's a period of uprising toward a what we hope is a better social outcome. Here we are now in 2003, 2023, and you've got the Extinction Rebellion, which is relatively new. But we've gone through Katrina. We've gone through the election of Obama. We've gone through, in 2008, we've gone through the 2008 housing crisis where the bubble burst. We've gone through the Great Recession, which many people say was pretty darn close to the damn recession that followed the stock market collapse in 1929. We've had Bernie Madoff. We've had uh, gap changes and how the you know FASB liability under the you know gap principles was was changed. We've had you know more credit card regulation, which is now in an argument toward rollback under the current administration. But we had all of this stuff happen in these last twenty years, swinging back toward the we. And there's a lot of very similar things. A, a time of upheaval as the pendulum swings up to this this the penultimate moment of of the we, the upswing toward the we part of the pendulum also forced, which forces a lot of, in the long run, social good as the pendulum starts to work back the other way. And my question is now, as the pendulum, you know, in 2023 kind of hits and then it starts working the other way and we start to see the impact of the, the work that's being done in these social systems, you start to look at the types of, types of kids that are no longer kids and that are Gen Z and that will be leading those efforts and the millennials that will be toward the middle in the latter middle part of their careers, how are they going to take the collective arguments and the discussions that are being had today and how are they going to drive those discussions forward in a way that it creates meaningful change for their generations and generations that follow them? We can argue that the establishment of the minimum wage was a meaningful labor law change that has impacted the lives of thousands of people since. It's an argument again around the $15 living wage that's being discussed again now and has been implemented in certain places. There's downsides of that too, which talk about the growth of technology and jobs, where if jobs, transactional jobs get too expensive, technology can replace them, and that's part of the productivity argument. I think that it's a, it's a time where we cannot, as an industry, rest on our laurels and think that as these undercurrent political populism-based arguments are being made about the role of the great institutions that have backed healthcare from the big foundational hospitals that dot many major cities and rural markets all over the country to the insurance organizations that have the bedrock big high-rises in the buildings that sit within their big cities to the local offices that employ people in rural markets as these, this generation that's coming up starts to look at the services that you provide and the value and the purpose that's behind your business, will they have a fundamentally different, will they have a fundamentally different argument 
about the role that you play and if you play a role at all. And we're at that time. We are at that time. We are in the middle of that discussion. Look at the democratic debates, which we've talked about at nauseum in previous podcasts. That populism is taking hold because there are a number of people that believe that the products that you have built don't serve them or they feel trapped because they can't afford them. Oh, yeah. Another little sip there. Where do you guys sit in all that? What I think is fascinating when you look at corporate response to some of this, I look no further than the Business Roundtable's announcement in August of this year where 181 CEOs came together and signed a letter that was basically the statement on the purpose of a corporation. It's the, in my opinion, the the new potential corporate dogma that replaces Milton Friedman's 1970, the social responsibility of businesses to increase its profits, which have been guiding most large publicly traded organizations, particularly for, you know, since the 70s. Think about the $200 billion plus millennial purchasing folks that are, that are coming up and are having more to spend that have also gone through arguments around the value of a four-year education. There's a survey that was out recently that said roughly half of all folks that, are, that, that have a four-year degree actually believe that it provided any value. That means the other half said it didn't. And the enormous expense that comes with college education, now there's a group of people that are questioning those institutions and whether the price tag actually is worth the investment, the investment in time and other things. And there are corporations now that are coming online saying that perhaps it is our role to make sure that the workforce is educated to do the jobs that need to get done to drive our mission, our purpose as an organization going forward. And it's not a complete reliance on four-year institutions. It may be a partnership with them or it may be something we do on our own. That's that institutional authenticity trust argument again. Am I getting the value from the institutions or has the institution itself become so big that it's forgotten all of the folks that are part of that, part of the market that they were supposed to serve? part of the purpose that they were supposed to be delivering. And how are they now, is the cost equilibrium so out of balance that the, the cost outweighs the advantage of, the, of what that organization is supposed to deliver? And I think that those are arguments that are also playing out in the, the healthcare space. Has the healthcare industry gotten so big that it no longer can even close to equitably serve the population that it's supposed to be under its mission, its charter, its purpose that it's supposed to be serving. So I look at these things like the business roundtables argument on, you know, that came out on August 19th and the new paper that came with it and saying they're now accountable to five shareholders, consumers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders, not just the purpose for profit, in the shareholder class, and that's really what we focus on. We're going to focus on our customers, our employees, our suppliers, our communities, and then our shareholders. And that's part of a five 
pronged approach that we want to take as part of our organization. And I think that it's, it's noble. It's laudable. I think that there were critics that said, if you aren't accountable to shareholders who are CEOs now held accountable to, are they just kind of diffusing their responsibility? So they're accountable now to no one because they've got these five different groups that they have to be accountable to. And that was the counter argument to a lot of this when this came out. I think that's something we could debate in much more depth at some point in the future, but it is a clear articulation of my opinion that these folks know that they have to reposition their businesses and they have to strengthen the core of the purpose of their business. And their business has to, at least in the appearances has to be more than just driving a shareholder return because these generations that are coming behind them, behind um, the, the leadership that's there today that are going to be purchasing now or going to be purchasing 10, 15 years from now and in droves, their mindset might be a little different and the positioning of these corporations has to be exact to the extent that these folks understand that there is a willing, authentic relationship that these large corporations are willing to create with them, with their communities. The ethical supply of the stuff that comes through the, through the distribution channels and, and other things. And this is a, the seminal argument that also has to be played out in healthcare. It's not all done with some lack of thinking, obviously, at this level, because Harvard Business Review did come out and say that companies that have a defined purpose typically outperform the market by 5 to 7% a year because it creates, even in the workforce side, it creates a world where you can, you're, you're creating a contract with your employees to say you can succeed through hard work, you can, can succeed through creativity, and you can also lead a life of meaning, meaning, some type of meaningful life. I'll get that right here in a second. That's, that's what people are thinking. Now, what I find is maybe a final point, and we'll get onto this a bit more later, is that there's 156 million, give or take, folks that are in the employer-sponsored insurance market today. They get their insurance to their employer. The big question I have is over the long haul, when you're an HR individual or if you're an employee benefit consultant and maybe just moving into being an, an employer consultant or an employer productivity consultant, is the focus in the long term really about continuing to create advantage for your employer over others and creating this very Byzantine labyrinth of crap that creates an overly complex system that only you can understand because you know complexity in my opinion sometimes is a sign of idiocy the real and I think Richard Branson said this more eloquently but the real beauty is in people that can make the complex very simple that's where all the thinking is and healthcare just continues to layer on more and more complexity and more and more crap and then saying but we're really important because we can help you navigate all this crap and this complexity and that's why we exist the reason you exist might need to be more than that, even with inside these, these companies to say, is the role that we need to play going forward really all about defining deductible and co-insurance structures or product structures and network structures and direct contracting with facilities? Or is the real role in the future all about finding ways to create a more purposeful approach even with your employees that extends beyond just a benefit relationship. And I know there are many organizations that say we already do that today. But is that really the focus going forward? Is it the focus really more about 
making sure that your employees are educated so they can be productive in the jobs that you're hiring and the jobs of the future that you need to be hiring toward and creating a culture of continuous learning. And that's where the resources should be going. That's where the thinking should be going. That's where the discussion around productivity should be taking place. And that should be the role of the HR person that continues to want to have a seat at the the C-level table inside those companies. Is it an education role? Is it creating culture of lifelong learning for those roles that need it? Is it making sure the tools are there and the classrooms are there and the things along those lines are there to help folks get there? Or there are community things that exist around the corner that allow those things to happen. And that's, those are the interesting arguments that I think have to be played out in, in a deeper form going forward. But the punchline for us and where we wanted to tweak the, the millennial Gen Z discussion a little bit today is that these folks are seeking a much more authentic relationship. It's incumbent upon our organizations to figure out how to build the products and services that actually meet these conversations. And the challenge may actually be that the dumb insurance instruments that exist today that are built for one for millions in the products approach and other things to create that authentic relationship. It might actually be that really smart personalized instrument that's built and tailored and wrapped around the individual. So what you're looking toward is the difficult approach of saying, here's who we are as a corporation, but here's a conversation we want to have that feels personalized to you. Something that fits you that may be a little bit different than the person that lives next to you, but still in the overall stitching of it pulls us all together in some type of a communal way. And I think that's the challenge that, a 50,000 foot level that this industry's got has to face because if we don't face that challenge, we continue to do the things that we're doing. I think we're going to fall into the authenticity trap. And I think the populism bug that's sweeping this nation is going to lead this industry down a path that many of you probably don't want. So I'll leave you with that thought. We'll continue to debate it, but thanks for hanging around for the altitude sessions podcast. We'll be back here in a couple of weeks. This is Brian Melanson at M4 innovation. Thanks very much.